following sermon was recorded live at Foundation Church of Fredericksburg in downtown Fredericksburg, Virginia. Peace, brother. Good morning. Peace be with you. If you have your Bibles, please grab them. Uh, find your way back to your seat. Grab your Bible and open to Matthew chapter 28. Excuse me, Matthew chapter 16. 28's a good one. But if you turn to 16, I think you'll follow along a little better. It's good to be in the house of the Lord. To gather, I'm grateful for health and recovery. Uh, but before we, we dig into God's Word and study together, we're going to pray for those who are still sick and ill. I want to pray particularly, of course, for my family and my wife, who, after caring for our three children and me over the last three to four weeks, has now herself uh, fallen ill. And so she's got what we all had over the last couple of weeks. And so pray for her. And, um, and for her quick recovery, uh, not for her own sake only, but for ours, as she is still very much a vital part of our household. Are there any others I can pray for by name that we know that are sick? They're not with us. Okay. Well, as I pray, if any come to mind, please, by all means, pray for them. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you, and we are so thankful that we are able to gather in person despite many of the challenges we've faced over the last several years. We, we trust you, God. We trust that your plan for your people is good, and your plan was, it has always been that your people would gather and worship, and we, we aim to do that this morning. But we also would recognize that there are many threats to that gathering both within and without, from the world and enmity and hostility against the gospel, but even the effects of, of sin and the fall in our lives often prevent us from doing that. So we ask, God, that you would give a measure of grace and comfort to those who are sick this morning and cannot gather. I think of my own wife and family and for others who have dealt with and cared for loved ones over the last several weeks. God, that you would help our church to be a church that loves one another and cares and serves one another in these times. And that though many might be absent in body, Lord, the fellowship of our church extends beyond just the walls. And indeed, we count them as part of our, our worship, even though they are at home. God, comfort those who are sick. Encourage them with your word. Heal them with your strength. And Father, we ask now that as we turn our attention to your word, the words of Christ, that you would give our hearts humility to hear it, to receive it, and to walk humbly in light of it. We love you, Lord, we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 18. Now, when Jesus came into the district of 
Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do you say that the Son of Man is? Or who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is the word of the Lord, and thanks be to God. The question central to our lives as Christians is this, how is the kingdom of God built? How does God intend, plan for the kingdom of God to be established on earth? Well, Jesus tells us his kingdom is not of this world, and yet he has also given authority to the church to establish itself as an outpost of that kingdom. And so we pray as Jesus taught us in Matthew 6, your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So how is the kingdom of God built? Well, Jesus' plan is that the kingdom of God breaks into the world first through his own incarnation and now through the church, which is his body. So when we think and talk about the kingdom of God, let us not think nebulously about some ethereal world, but rather... Let us think about the concrete buildings or mud huts or large cathedrals in which the people of God are meeting and praising and worshiping Christ. That is the picture of the kingdom of God that Jesus intends for us to understand. And it is built in and through the church who is the people of God. And what we see in our text is this, that the church then, which is the kingdom of God, represents God's kingdom to the nations, is built on the word of God, and particularly the good and true confession of the gospel. Now, this isn't just traditional Christian language, the kingdom of God and the church and having this confession revealed not by flesh and blood, but by the Father who is in heaven and Christ who builds his church on the rock. This isn't just language we use because it's in the Bible. This is an important identity-shaping language. The church, the kingdom of God, who we are, and on what we are built. So if we get this idea of the church as God's kingdom wrong, Many serious errors will follow. So this morning, 
I want to try something that might be a little tricky, uh, but I trust the Spirit will help us in this endeavor. I want us to think in terms of two realms of responsibility. The first is for each one of us here as Christians, if indeed you are a Christian, for every member of a true church, Christ's body, to think about the responsibility that you have as a member of that body. But the second realm of responsibility or the second mode of thinking is this. It's the unique charge then to elders of a true church. This morning, we'll take time to install new elders here at Foundation. We've talked about this and prayed about this for many months now. And two weeks ago, we as members voted to appoint both Jake and John as elders, pastors of this church, alongside myself. Well, this morning, we'll install them formally and pray for them as we give them the charge here from God's Word to lead us as pastors, as shepherds of God's flock. But every member has a responsibility, and every elder or pastor also has a responsibility, and I want us to track with both of those realms of responsibility here in Matthew 16. And to do that, I've got four brief points, and I'll intersperse both charges to Jake and to John and charges to you as a congregation, members here of the church. The first responsibility is that the church is not to be built on man, but on a rock. What does Jesus say in verse 18? He says, I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, much has been said about this particular passage, about whether Jesus means Peter being the rock, and it's on Peter's ministry and his work that the church is built, or if it's something else, perhaps what Peter has said, or the disciples more generally, or who is he actually giving the keys of the kingdom to? And we don't have time to fully unpack this. In due time, we will resume our study in the book of Matthew, and we'll get there. But the point this morning is that the church here is not built on man. Though Jesus turns to Peter and calls him by name, the church is not built on a man any more than this church is built on me or on any one of us. The church is built on a rock. Many have suggested if Peter is not the rock, perhaps Jesus is the rock. And that's certainly true. Jesus is the rock of our salvation. He is our fortress and our stronghold. He is the great solid rock on which we stand, as the good hymn reminds us. But I think from our text this morning, we come to understand that the, the rock on which Jesus builds his church is not Peter, is not a group of pastors or disciples. It is rather the divinely revealed confession of Peter. There in verse 16, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and this is the foundation on which everything else rests. What does Jesus say? He asks, who do you say that I am? And Peter, speaking on behalf of the disciples there, as he often does, 
says, you are the Christ. He confesses, he acknowledges as true, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus responds, blessed are you, Simon. For my flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And on this rock, I will build my church. Contained in this small phrase, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, contains all of the untold riches of God's mercy to us in Christ. It contains the depths unfathomable of the gospel message that Peter would go on to proclaim, that we believe this morning. Jesus is the Christ. That's the Greek word for the Hebrew word for Messiah, God's anointed one, chosen and sent by God to be for us a redeeming lamb whose blood was shed for our sins, rescuing us from our condemnation and untold judgment, eternal damnation. Christ, Messiah, anointed one. Jesus is that one. And yet he is the son of God. He comes as a man, but Peter confesses he is the son of God. He is divine. Not merely human like you and I, but in his very essence, both God and man. The two natures of Christ contained in his one person. How this works is a mystery. And certainly Peter doesn't intend to unpack that mystery for us. But what we see here is that the very precious jewel of the church on which we stand is this confession. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, sent by God to become a propitiation a wrath-bearer for us. Why? Because we are in need of redemption. You and I stood before God, sin and all. And before a righteous God, we stand condemned. We cannot stand before God with our sin and not receive rightly his wrath against our unrighteousness. This is true for every person ever born. We need redemption if we are to have reconciliation with God. If we want to be found in God's favor and blessed by God, we need somebody to step in and pay the penalty for us. Jesus steps in and pays the penalty for us. His blood is shed, his body is broken, his life is laid down. He is appointed for this task to be for us our redemption. And so the church is not built on Peter, but it's built on the work of Jesus and the person of Jesus, that is, the Christ, 
the Son of God. No man can bear the weight that the church places upon it. No man can bear the weight of the glory of God, which the church is called to uphold. No man can rightly bear the weight of the glory of God as his people are gathered, redeemed, and called, and worshiping Jesus. Only Christ can. And so Peter, of course, is given a a unique role and given unique authority, even among the disciples here, to preach the gospel. But it is his confession which Jesus means to commend as the rock on which the church is built. He's given authority to lead and oversee the church, him and the other apostles. But his positional authority in the church, it's rooted in the work of foundational purposing, that is building the church. But more deeply, it's rooted in the accuracy of its confession. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so, Jake and John, the charge for us as elders is that we, we are not here to build the church. The church is not built on our gifts. You both have your own unique set of giftings. And those who know you know exactly what those are. A, a breadth of intellect and wisdom, a heart of compassion and gentleness, insight into the scriptures in which one person alone cannot see, a care and a desire to lead and see and purify the church and the world around us in unique ways. Those are gifts that God has equipped you with to lead and to serve the church. And you're expected to use those gifts in service to the church. But you would be mistaken if we understood that those gifts were given to you or any gifts given to me or any other leader within the church so that the church might be built up and around these gifts. You can't bear the weight of that. You are not smart enough, kind enough, righteous enough, gentle enough, good enough at preaching, or good enough looking or charismatic to lead the church in the way that the Lord needs his leaders to do. Only Christ can do this. So the church is not to be built on your gifts. It's not built on your authority. It's not built on your righteousness. It's not built on your preaching. You may work to build the church with these gifts, But the rock on which the church stands is not you, and it's not me, but the confession that Jesus is the Christ, Son of the living God. Well, friends, the charge to you is this. Do not place on these leaders the burden that they are not meant to bear. Do not look to men who lead the church as those who are to build it with their own power and strength. Do not burden them with a task they are not meant to complete. Christ is the one who builds his church. And the church is to be built not on any one of us, but on the truth of the gospel of Jesus' death and resurrection. The person of Christ, who is the son of the living God. When we put that burden on leaders, not only do we entice them to spend all of their energy to the neglect of their family on the church. But we lead them to worship an idol 
which God has not called them to worship. He has called them to himself as he has you. And we build the church together, standing on the rock of the riches of Christ's work and his person. So the church is not built on man, but on the foundation of the divinely revealed confession that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. Secondly, we see in the text that the church gathers on this rock. The church is called to gather on this rock. The very word church here, Jesus says, which he is building on this rock, is the word assembly or gathering. It's a group of called out people gathered or assembled together for a purpose. This purpose is to preach, pray, to read, to sing, to hear, and to see God's work in action in our lives as we worship together. God has purchased the people for himself with the blood of Christ that we may come and gather together in worship of Jesus and of no other person. And so, John and Jake, this means that you are to gather the flock of God around the word, not around your charismatic personalities or lack thereof, not around your preaching, not around your gifts. You are to gather them around God's word and you are to feed them with God's word. You gather the flock of God and you feed them with the word of God. You see, the sheep are tempted to gather for all sorts of reasons. And sheep that are hungry will find their way to any source of food that they think might satisfy their hunger. We'll be tempted often to gather around anything that promises to us comfort and ease to fill our bellies with whatever satisfies our hunger at any given moment. But you and I know that only the word of God is able to satisfy the longing of the human soul as it points us to Christ. Only the word of Christ will provide us with true comfort and joy. And it is our responsibility as elders to gather God's people, not with gifts or music, or lights, or promise of anything else except the Word of God and the nourishment it brings. Brothers and sisters, if you're here this morning because you like the way I preach, or you like the way our church looks or feels, I'm grateful for that. But your primary purpose in being here this morning must be to feed on the Word of God. Elders play a role in this, in this work. As we read from Ephesians 4, God gives to the church these sorts of men with these sorts of giftedness in order to equip the church to be built up in love and do the work of the ministry. But friends, you must come hungry and come take and eat. This is your role. As the elders here are charged to gather the people and feed them with God's word, you are come to be gathered around God's word and feast on it. 
the church is to gather on this rock. Third, it is not man who builds the church, but Christ. It is not man who builds the church, but Christ. See, our efforts are spent. We should be working, each one of us, in the service of God to participate in the work He's called us to, each with the gifts and the Spirit has endowed with us or upon us. But our efforts are not spent to produce a kingdom by our own power, as if we are the ones who build, as if we are the architects, but rather we spend ourselves and our efforts and our energies to be used by Christ as He establishes the church by His power. He establishes the church by His power. While we must work, we must understand that our work is not the foundational work, but it is the work that we are building upon. Christ builds His church. So again, brothers, I say to you, remember that Christ builds His church. Not you, not I. Christ will build His church. And this is a special promise, particularly to elders, I think. To all of us, but particularly to those who are called to lead the church. Because you will find in your season of ministry many sources of discouragement because your efforts seem to be in vain. You'll be discouraged because the person you spent time with praying for, leading, counseling, has gone to be with the world, who has rejected your, your counsel, has turned away from God's word. It will break you, and you'll be discouraged. And you'll wonder, if I just had said the right thing, if I'd done the right thing, spoken this earlier, or changed this, maybe that brother would still be walking with the Lord. Maybe our church would be bigger. Maybe we would have seen that person saved. But that's not your responsibility to bear. Christ builds his church. You are workers in that labor. But Christ builds his church. So do not be discouraged then when your labors are hard and the fruit is slow to grow. I commend you, especially John, for being with us six years and never once complaining of the size of our church. It's difficult when you labor in a place and see little fruit. But when you know that Christ builds his church, you know the fruit that has been yielded is exactly what he desires at his own pace in his own time. Do not be discouraged by the pace that Christ builds his church, but be encouraged that he has not placed that responsibility on you, but takes it on himself. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 3? Well, Paulus planted the seed and I watered, but God gives the growth. This church is established not because we've worked so hard, but because God has established it through our work. He is the one who gives the growth to the church. So as you lead this church as its pastors, do not be discouraged because your work has not borne fruit. It will in its season. Be encouraged that Christ is building it in spite of the many things we often do contrary to it. But church, the same must be said to you. Trust that God is building the church. 
Look not to your leaders if the church is smaller than you'd like or are used to, that the resources of the church are fewer than you'd like or perhaps have been used to, that there are things going undone that you think ought to be done. Look not to your leaders as those who bear ultimate authority or responsibility, that we may have our share. But trust that he who began a good work in you and in this church and in each other will bring that good work to completion on the day of our Lord. That is, remember that Christ is even now building our church. That he has not completed his process of establishing Foundation Church and the global church around the world. We have not yet arrived. We still are, as they would say, under construction. We are a work in progress. Amen? But Christ is building his church. He is working in you as he is working in me. And he is establishing a body of believers that love him and serve him to the best of their ability with the strength that he provides. Man does not build the church. Christ does. And lastly, man does not own the church. Christ does. The church is not man's, but Christ's. Notice what he says. I will build my church. It is his, not ours. Colloquially, of course, we ask, what church do you go to? Oh, my church is this. And I think that's completely fair and appropriate. You don't have to say, I go to Jesus' church named Foundation. You can if you'd like. You get some weird looks. But the reality is that this church is neither yours nor mine, but Christ's. And insofar as we belong to Christ and are part of Christ's body, we can say that it is our church. But the owner of this church is Christ. Whatever part any one of us may play in the church's establishment and its growth, it will not be as owners, but it will be as stewards. We have been given a gift. We must steward our resources. We do not own them. The work we have in this church is one as stewards and not as owners. Again, what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians chapter 4? That stewards are to be faithful. That is the chief responsibility of a steward, to be faithful with what they have been given. And so to both elders and members, I charge this. Never lose sight of all that the gospel has accomplished and is continuing to accomplish in the church. We are stewards of this great gift of the gospel. And we are laboring to see the gospel flourish in our city, in our communities, and in our families. And we have been given this gift to steward it, to grow it, to serve it, trusting that God will cause it to come to fruition. But we must not lose sight of all that the gospel has accomplished and is accomplishing even today because it is Christ's church. He and he alone is to be worshipped. He is to be worshipped. We worship Christ and the power of the Spirit who has reconciled us to the Father. It is his church, his body, to which we belong but do not own. He is the head or the bridegroom. His body, his pride, his possession. 
And so what is the gospel accomplishing among us as we serve together as both elders and as members? The gospel is accomplishing the gathering and the establishing of a people for his own possession. Both Peter and Paul and Titus says that Christ purchased the church with his blood and he purifies the church as his own possession that we would do good works. We are a people that belong to Christ. We are his possession. We are his. The gospel makes us Christ's. You were once belonging to the enemy, under the sway of the devil, the Apostle John would say. You once did not belong to God, but now you belong to God. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people. You are now the household members of God's family in Christ. What a privilege it is to believe and have received the gift of the gospel that means that you and I are sons and daughters of God, redeemed by the blood of Jesus. A gift we have that we must steward because it is Christ's church and his gospel. We have also in the gospel the gift of the ever-present company of Christ and his spirit. In Matthew 28, which you may turn if you'd like, and he gives what we call the Great Commission. The Great Promise, and Matthew ends this gospel with it, is that Jesus, he says, will be with you always until the end of the age. I will be with you always until the end of the age. As he sends out his disciples into the world to make disciples, to baptize and to teach them, he tells them to go in the power of Christ's Spirit. I am with you always till the end of the age. Brothers and sisters, we have the ever-present company of Christ who goes with us as we make disciples in Fredericksburg and beyond. We must not lose sight of this promise that no matter where we go, in the darker corners of our neighborhood or the darkest corners of the world, Christ is with us. As you preach the gospel, as you commend the gospel to others, Christ is with you. As you pray through the darkest times of your life, Christ is with you in the valley of the shadow of death. As you give thanks to God for all that he has done for you and through you, he is there with you, rejoicing. When you make disciples of all nations, when you teach others what Christ has commanded, he is with you. When you do the hard work of being a disciple, he is with you. That is a precious promise and gift to those who have the gospel. And it is because the church does not belong to any one of us, but to Christ. And so he gives us this gift. And lastly, we have in the gospel the hope of glory. In fact, this is our job as elders to remind the hope that we have in Christ for each one of us who often lose sight of it. There's much you can offer to the church as elders. There's much will benefit. 
But the greatest thing that you can do for us is to point people to the hope of Christ and our hope of glory. Colossians chapter 1, verse 25. Paul says, He rejoices in the suffering for their sake and in my flesh, filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of his mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. What better text to remind us as elders of what our, our job is. When we say we are stewards, we mean we are stewards of this mystery of Christ, that he is with us and by his spirit in us. And with that presence, we have the hope of glory. That is, he is working and will continue to work and bring that work to completion where we, together as a church, universal, dwell with him in glory. That's the promise of the gospel for all those who believe. Your sins are paid. Your sins are forgiven. You are made righteous with God and you have the hope of glory, which is yours in Christ. This is accomplished only through his blood. This is the ministry of reconciliation. This was revealed only to those who have ears to hear and eyes to see. And it is revealed by those who preach the gospel, the good news. We proclaim warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom why that we may present everyone mature in Christ and we do this with all his energy that he powerfully works within us. Christ owns the church. It is his body, his bride, his prize, and his possession. And so our job as elders is to lead the church to worship Christ. Not to worship a theology, not to worship a book, not to worship an ideology. It is to worship a person. It is to worship the Christ, the Son of the living God. Would you pray? God, you, you were so gracious to us and have given us so much in the gospel, an unfathomable amount of riches, our inheritance is too great for us to comprehend. It goes beyond all breadth and height and depth. goes beyond all comprehension. Yet it is ours. It is ours in Christ. Father, I pray, God, for our work as members of this church that we rightly recognize that everything we do here is done and built upon the truth of the gospel, 
that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of the living God. May we never lose sight of this. And as we would take a, a grateful step in the right direction for our church, installing these brothers as our new pastors. Help us, Lord, to be thankful not only for their leadership, but to hold them accountable for that work which they are to be stewards of in pointing to us Christ and his work. And may we stand not in any one of our ingenuities, creativity, intellect, or other th- otherwise, but on the rock of the gospel. We love you and we thank you. Now we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together. Recent sermons are released under a Creative Commons non-commercial, no derivative 3.0 license. If you'd like to learn more or listen to past sermons, please visit us at foundationfxbg.com. grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all.